Good morning and welcome to episode 769 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh of ESPN, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. I can actually specify now where within ESPN. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538 as, oh, of, I didn't know as of now. Okay. Does that mean you're going to have to start producing things? <laughs> yeah, probably. Ugh. Not on a regular schedule until the book is finished, but I'll be doing some writing and some editing and some baseball and some non-baseball. Mm, so, Congratulations. Nice to have a home again. Mm-hmm. A good home. Yeah. Fun home. Yeah. Fun home with, good, with a good father. Reunited with Nate Silver, reunited with our friend Rob Arthur, reunited with Kirk Goldsberry from Grantland, obviously lots of other excellent writers whose work I read and admire. Maybe I'll do some podcast stuff over there. We'll see how many more jobs this podcast follows me to. What is this? The f- <laughs> this is the fourth introduction of myself that I've had now while still what, doing this podcast. What was the... Well, if you count ESPN as a as a temporary I, one. I don't. Did you do a single thing? No. Well, I, I couldn't. I didn't have a place to do a thing. Uh-huh. So don't we're not counting that. Okay. It was a transitional stage. Holding holding pattern. Uh-huh. Alright. So Rich Hill signed. What did yeah. you think of the, the one year six million dollar deal for Rich Hill? Bigger, smaller than you expected or dreamed? Couple uh couple few years shorter and uh probably two zeros fewer than I would have been willing to, to go to. Uh-huh. I I probably would have given him seven and Seven and one twenty. <laughs> yes, I don't know. I six million. I, I I don't. I mean, I have to give Major League Baseball teams a lot of credit for being disciplined, because um, I just feel like if I had a chance to get a guy who looked as good as he did over the last month, um, I wouldn't be able to think rationally, mm-hmm. and I would just do it. I would just be so like I would feel like I would talk myself into this as like the great opportunity that I'll never get again to get like a, like a super ace for, you know, $6 million. Right. (laughs) Like he's probably not, I mean, you know, it's, there's thankfully there's probably 50 people in the front office who can restrain you uh, when you sail past that Island. But I would, uh, I would absolutely have gotten crazy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm actually a little disappointed that out of 30 teams, this seems to me to be a pretty good, proof that the winner's curse is uh, flawed because 30 teams and not one of them did anything nuts yeah not one. <laughs> you're right it seems it seems awfully lo- like th- i mean look what is the bit what is the fear with rich hill in your mind is it the injury uh risk or the he's not going to be good risk uh or is it a combination of the two well with any pitcher it's to some extent a combination of the two but with him specifically i think it's probably more the latter, right? I mean, his problems were less injury-related than just just being bad, right? I mean, were there were there many injuries along the way, or was he just pitching poorly? 
I think there were a lot of injuries. I think it was... Hang on. I'm going to go to Corey Dawkins' site and see what his injury history is. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he was doing... Like, he was pitching in, in, like, complex league games at certain points, so those would certainly be injuries. All right. Rich Hill, 6'5", 220. That's first the one. place, Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. All right. 2014, no injury. 2015, no injury. 2013, no injury. 2012, injury. So, uh-huh. yeah, he missed a lot of time in 2012, 2011. I think the what original. What was the injury in 2012? Uh, elbow. Uh-huh. Uh, forearm strain missed 84 days, and that came right after. Uh, coming back from, I think, TJ in 2011, uh, I think. And uh, then he had labrum surgery in 2009. So the original the original uh, um, blow to his career was all injuries. Like he was, everything was going pretty well. And then his whole body collapsed on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had uh, back problems. He had shoulder problems. He had elbow problems. All of those things. Now, I think the last three years, you're right, that he has, it hasn't been injuries. It's been uh, the, uh, you know, the ERA of uh, six that he had as a reliever, uh, left-handed specialist in 2013, for instance, is pretty bad. Yeah. Like, that's pretty bad. Pretty bad. You don't want your loogie to have an ERA over six. No, you don't. Uh, And then 2014, uh, he was... You know, trucking along in the minors, doing pretty well. Good mm-hmm. strikeout rates, always as a reliever. <clears throat> I never did read, I don't, since I don't, but I never did read the the why Rich Hill is great now story. Did some some beat writer must have like figured, yeah, asked him like if someone taught him a cutter or something, right? Yeah, I don't. I saw more analytical versions of that. I didn't really read the backstory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're more worried about him being bad than being unhealthy. I'm not worried about him being bad. Okay. I'm, I'm not worried about him being bad. I don't know. Did this, you, you might, I can't remember. It's been a while since this all happened, but surely at the time we knew uh, how, uh, un, how uh, unusual it is to have a four start stretch this good and whether it's telling, whether it's signature. Yeah. I, the whole idea of signature, I don't know how much there is to that, at least with young pitchers, but when you, yeah, I mean, there weren't, there wasn't much precedent for guys just being that good, period. So mm-hmm. it was definitely not fluky. I mean, it seemed fluky, but the actual performance was not fluky. So, Ben, let me ask you a question. Say it's not Rich Hill. Say you didn't know his name, you didn't know any of his backstory. And uh, a guy shows up in the majors, and you don't, uh, like, he's just a guy. You've never heard his name, right? But someone signed him for some reason and threw him out on a mound. So best guess, what is his ERA going to be in your mind? Do I know anything? You don't know anything. You just know <laughs> that he just got signed. Uh-huh. So he so he wasn't on a team a month earlier. Uh-huh. And, and that he is on a mound. That someone thought that it was worth putting him on a mound. So what okay. kind of ERA would you expect from that guy? You know, whatever replacement level is. Yeah, so like five, you know, five four, yeah. five five, something like that. Uh, okay, so then first start he goes. Uh, I'll I'll get the exact. So his first start, he um, 
His first start, he goes seven innings, strikes out ten, throws a one hitter, walks one. What is now? What is your adjusted expected <laughs> ERA for this guy? It was five three. Yeah. Now what? Do you, what do you expect now? <laughs> now he's he's probably like league average. Okay, so now he's yeah. like four four point one. Yeah. Okay. So then the next start against the Blue Jays in Toronto, <laughs> he goes seven, strikes out ten, walks nobody, and gives up three runs on seven hits. Yeah. Um, uh, so now what is you, you've got two starts, fourteen innings, a guy you've never heard of, twenty strikeouts, one walk in fourteen innings against good teams. Uh, uh-huh. What's your expected ERA now? Three point five. Three point five. All right. So now the next start, <laughs> he throws a two hit shutout, strikes out ten, walks one. So now he, you only know all you know about this guy is that he wasn't pitching a month ago, and three starts, thirty strikeouts, two walks in twenty five innings, mm-hmm. twenty twenty three innings. And have I seen him? Or have it, I just seen the box scores? Doesn't matter. You could see. It, we, yeah. You think it'll matter? Well, if he's throwing ninety nine or something, I mm. might <laughs> might change my answer. Say so, yeah, I just see the box scores. Yeah, just yeah. the box scores. Okay. So this third start. So two hit two hit shutout, ten strikeouts, one walk. Three. Three. All right. So now he's a three ERA <laughs> guy. And then the last start against the Yankees in New York, six innings, six strikeouts, two runs. Three walks and uh, a game score of fifty nine. Yeah, well, that is a three ERA, right? So I'll just that stick with my three. Stick with three. I think that strangely, that would actually maybe make the ERA go slightly up for uh-huh. me. Uh, <laughs> but all right, so then what you're saying uh, is that it is worse to know that it is Rich Hill than to not know that it is Rich Hill in this situation. That it would be better for him to be a stranger with no history in the game than, yes. to, be, than to be Rich Hill. Because <laughs> then I could at least imagine he was some sort of, like, Toe Nash Sure, story. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah exactly. Uh, which worked out great, by the way, for everybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the famous Hall of Fame career of Toe Nash. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Nobody ever was wrong about Tonash. Uh, all right. So that I, I, th- I think that the point that you that you can adjust upwards or downwards based on it actually being Rich Hill in Not a Stranger is fair. And I'm not sure whether Rich Hill's past is in his favor or not. Like I've you know, like we talked about at the time, his strikeout rates have always been uh, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has uh, it's a very long time ago, but he does have some success in the majors, although not this level of success. Even when he was really good with the Cubs, he wasn't really that good. Right. Yeah, I think that it is fair to dock him for being Rich Hill uh-huh. uh, as opposed to uh, Stranger. Yeah. I, I would guess, uh, should we should we just do a bet right now? Let's let's do it right now. Okay. How many, I'm going to write down, I'm going to write down two numbers and I want you to write down two numbers in your head uh you don't have to write them down because i'm writing them down okay. the numbers are going to be how many innings he pitches next year and what his era will be and uh, i'm gonna say that and okay okay all right i have mine you can go ahead and do yours all right how many innings and what will his era be i'll say 130 innings and a 3.8 okay in Oakland. i have I have 84 innings and a 3.39. All right. So there we go. Uh, would you give – how much would you pay for a guy who you projected to throw 130 innings at a 3.80? Probably more than $6 million. 
And would you be happy to, if he were willing to take $6 million, would you be happy to give it to him for a second year as well? Yeah, I think so. All right. So should have gotten him for 2-12. and 12. Yeah. All right. There we go. All right. The Rich Hill transaction analysis. <laughs> Rich Hill is my new Ray Durham, actually. You know how I've tried, oh, tried and failed to contact Ray Durham when Mariano Rivera was retiring because I wanted to do a story on what it was like to face Mariano Rivera 26 times and have a zero on base percentage. And I got as far as getting Ray Durham's number and leaving him voicemails, and that was as far as I got. So I wanted to do a story on Rich Hill's free agency, because what could be more fascinating than a, like a TikTok of what offers he got and what his strategy was and how he valued himself and how other teams valued him and what the range was and the offers he got and what his agent's strategy was would have been fascinating. So <laughs> I left messages for his agency, no response. I managed to get Rich Hill's number. I texted him, no response. <laughs> I texted Rich Hill yesterday to see if he wanted to come on the podcast, no response. So I think I might just text rich hill every few years just you want to cold call him right now see if it picks up <laughs> no why not oh man that would be very awkward well you're not going to get anything from him now well no so no i was thinking i might just text him every few years to just let him know how things are going with me <laughs> i look he's he has no power over you ben his his approval or rejection of you and your way of life mean nothing <laughs> This All would right. be like if I had texted Ned Garver and he had not answered, and then we called him. <laughs> I'm 99.9% sure that if we had texted Ned Garver, he would have not answered. <laughs> I, I Rich Hill, right. you know, Rich Hill, maybe he's just, I mean, he is old. Maybe he just doesn't know how to text. That could be. He's, he's a caller. <laughs> he's a phone guy. Yeah. <laughs> Landline. Yeah. Maybe it is. Are you sure it's a cell phone? Maybe it is a landline and he doesn't even get the texts. I was told it's a cell phone. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> My book will come out at some point. Unanswered text to Rich Hill. I'll collect them all. All right. Okay. So we... Just a brief thing on the Mike Trout punctuation matter, because we've gotten lots of theories and responses, and he hasn't really done anything to move the needle. He hasn't really tweeted much lately. He did his most recent tweet with punctuation, there was no space before the exclamation point, although it was the last word of the tweet, so I don't know if that changes anything. So I think the most interesting response, maybe most enlightening response we got was from Jared, who pointed out that his cousin, he told us about his cousin Chet, who is a retiree, an older gentleman, good guy, baseball fan, and he types like Mike Trout. And he sent us some samples, and they're very Mike Trout-esque. He seems to leave spaces in front of almost every form of punctuation. So if there's a comma, there's a space before the comma. If there's a parentheses, there's a space before the parentheses. And obviously, he's not taking a cue from Mike Trout. And he types this way on email and Facebook, and his wife does not type this way. And... It, basically, he types like Mike Trout, but he's an older guy. So Jared emailed Chet to ask him why he does this, and he sent us the response. And Chet didn't really uh, 
it wasn't really a complex answer. He said, I like separating from the last word. <laughs> when, <laughs> when he hand wrote things, he says he doesn't do much handwriting these days, but in the past, and space, comma, I was conventional in anything handwritten, space, exclamation point. So when he actually wrote things on paper, normal writer, but now that he types things, he has just switched to the Mike Trout style. And it seems to have just been a decision that he came to himself. And so I think that the most likely explanation is that Mike Trout just has a punctuation quirk. It's what we thought all along that this is just the thing that Mike Trout does. And maybe we all have these punctuation quirks. In fact, I asked you about one of yours last week, which has puzzled me for a while, which is when you end an email to someone you are familiar with, you'll say thanks, comma, and then there's nothing <laughs> nothing after the comma. The sentence never ends, and you don't sign the email. And I was very perplexed by why I always looked down to see if you signed it Sam and you didn't and then I wonder why you didn't end it with a period and you explained to me that you used to sign it and you still do sign it if it's someone you don't know well but now you just sort of assume I mean, that the signature is is assumed and you just save the second that it takes to hit enter and type Sam yeah so is, we all have is, our quirks is. Yeah, I'm sort of pointing to the idea of a signature while feeling, uh, while not feeling the need to actually go through with the uh, the labor of it. Right. Okay. It's a it's remnant sort of, it's like yeah. a little shadow of an of an earlier time in our relationship. Uh huh. Okay. So let's answer a few emails. This one is from our friend Mark Simon at ESPN. And he wants to know, what did you guys make of hearing Jerry DePoto reference Leonis Martin's war when talking about him on the conference call announcing the trade? On one hand, you could make a case that it was a great step for war, since it might be the first time it was referenced publicly by a GM to validate a trade. On the other, it might leave you wondering, as it left one of my colleagues, why your GM was referencing Baseball References war when teams supposedly have their proprietary wars that we hear about that are supposed to be better than what is publicly available. Personally, I thought it was great, but I suppose some might be wondering, as my colleague was. And I'll read the DePoto quote. He said, This is a guy that has put up about nine and a half war the past three years, which is not an insignificant number. And that came after he was kind of pointing out that he was a low BABIP guy and seems like a bounce-back candidate. Well, I uh, I wouldn't say that him citing first of all he doesn't necessarily cite a public war. He might be citing his own, the team's own, or his own model. Uh, one of the things. Yeah, yeah, it's probably the public. Well, no, one. I know, but but one of the things that I mean, look, every team, ha- not it, probably every team. Yeah, I think almost every team. Somebody has told me they think every team has uh, a war model their own war model, whatever. But most war models are essentially the same thing, and you're just plugging in different ways of uh, measuring certain aspects of it or perhaps adding in a variable here or two, uh, here or there, uh, that you're able to measure that somebody else chooses or is unable uh, to measure. And so uh, the fact that uh, he's using war uh, is not to say that he's uh, not using his war. Secondly... 
the fact that he is, if he is using, say, a public war instead of his own uh, internal model, that might just be, well, we're not going to give away ours. We're not going to, I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to, I'm trying to convey a point to the public that is also looking up their war and is familiar with this. And I'm kind of reminding them of this fact. So it's just sort of generally communicating to people using the available information that you share with them that everybody shares access to. Uh, or the slightly more sinister explanation is that, in fact, he has a public, a, a private model for war that says that Martin was worth five and a half wins over the last three years, and he is war shopping, which I think a lot of people do. I think yeah. to either either to prove your point or to uh, to uh, enhance your point uh, or to win an argument, I do think people, probably even people in the public, do a little bit of war shopping, a little bit of stat shopping generally, uh, and uh, it's conceivable that uh, that he's uh, doing what you know they do in press releases or what Scott Boris does, which is you know, you look at all the things you could say about a guy and say, which one looks best? Uh, and that maybe that was the one that made Martin look best. Yeah. And I guess it at least sends the message that war has become embraced to the point where he would want to use it as support for a move. Like it, you could, you could say that a guy is worth nine and a half war, but if no one knows or cares what war is, then it doesn't really help you. It might even get you disparaged or something. So the fact that he cited it says at least that war has reached the point where you can just kind of casually drop it into a press conference or a conference call and have people understand what it is and have people actually care what it says. So that's probably it. I mean, it's also uh, like we talk about sometimes, it's important to think about who he's talking to. And in this case, he's probably talking to us. But sometimes, uh, a lot of times, the audience uh, for a GM is really either his owners or the people who he's leading his team, for instance, his players, his manager. Uh, and it might be conceivable that he is communicating uh, to, his, to his owner that this is actually something that is kind of geared toward the people in the organization to say, you know, to sort of reinforce the way that they make these decisions is a little bit nerdier. Uh, or maybe he's trying to convey that to us. Maybe it's not about the individual of the war itself, but rather just the simple fact is itself a self-serving kind of uh, way of reinforcing the notion that uh, he is a, a smart guy who is bringing a, a different openness than you know the the, la the latter years of uh, the Jack Z regime. Possibly, uh, it is also perhaps notable that. He, it, I kind of think he maybe did war shop here because Fangraph's war has him at under seven mm -hmm. and B-Rep has him over nine. And I think, I think, as I recall correctly, in a chat that he did somewhere at MLB.com or maybe ESPN or maybe something. Oh, it was on, I think it was a Twitter. I think it was a hashtag sort of a thing where you could ask Jerry. And I think, I'll correct myself if I turned out to be wrong. That he said that he is, um, he leans Fangraphs war. Uh huh. huh. I think. So and he so, has, if he has opted <laughs> now, it, that now it, it's also possible. Like I said, that his internals are what he's referring to. I don't right. put that past him. Uh, and I, it's also possible. Like uh, you can be a Fangraphs war for hitters or for pitchers, or a B ref war for batters. 
uh, or you could prefer one to the other based on position. You might think that one system is better on first base defense and another is better on outfield defense or another is better in handling the shift. Or if you're very smart, uh, if you have any sense whatsoever, uh, you're using warp because it uh, includes uh, incredibly advanced uh, catcher framing uh, metrics as well as the uh, extremely detailed and uh, uh, broad thinking DRA metric to get pitcher value. So that might also be what he is doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. We just don't know. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit about something I've always remembered. There was a QA and a at MLB.com when Neil Huntington was hired as GM of the Pirates in 2007, and it was the very first question in this Q&A. Some guy named Eric said, the Pirates' upper management has widely ignored OBP in the past. How important will OBP be in player evaluation under your leadership? And Neil Huntington says, we are going to utilize several objective measures of player performance to evaluate and develop players. We'll rely on the more traditional objective evaluations, OPS, WIP, runs created, ERC, component ERA, ground ball to fly ball ratio, strikeouts per nine, strikeouts per walk, <laughs> walk percentage, etc. Those are the more traditional <laughs> objective evaluations that he'll be looking at. But we'll also look to rely on some of the more recent variations, VORP, relative performance, I don't even know what that is, but both, both words are capitalized, equivalent average, equivalent on base percentage, equivalent slugging percentage, ball and play percentage, WOBA, range factor, probabilistic model of range, and zone rating. <laughs> so he just he just listed every single sabermetric <laughs> stat that existed in the first Q&A he did as a GM. So it definitely was like a purpose pitch kind of answer where he was yeah. like, I know sabermetrics. <laughs> so not that DePoto needs to do that because it's eight years later and... I think he already has a reputation as a more sabermetric sort of guy, but it sort of sends the message that he's looking at the things that we're looking at. Honestly, I just think that like he's like, Leonis Martin's pretty good. And then he looked up his baseball reference page and he saw a lot of war and he's like, this is one way I can tell people that. And I don't think there's much beyond that. I think, you know, he's a cool dude who just said a thing, pretty <laughs> right. casual, chill. <laughs> Yeah. Reference and chill. Yep. Okay. Scott says, Ken Rosenthal announcing that the Marlins may trade Jose Fernandez on the same day that David Ortiz announces 2016 will be his final year leads me to this hypothetical. Would the Red Sox trade David Ortiz straight up for Jose Fernandez? From a projected war standpoint only, of course, Fernandez is projected to outperform Ortiz, but what would it take for Boston's front office to deal this potential Hall of Famer after he announced a retirement tour. For, first of all, what, what level of retirement tour do you think David Ortiz will get? Will he get the full Jeter, Chipper Jones treatment? Has he'll he earned the, that? He'll get the full Chipper. The full Chipper, uh-huh. Yeah. He, I don't, he, won't, he won't get the full Jeter. I guess they were different, but just because the, the Yankees Dude, make a huge deal of everything. But yeah, Chipper got like the, gifts like everywhere he went. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. He got the That's the full Chipper. But Jeter got a Nike commercial. Right. No, a Gatorade. What was it? A Gatorade commercial? I think it was both. He, they, re, they re-spelled a word in the English language to put his <laughs> uniform number in it. That's right. And everyone he, in the world tipped their cap he to got, him. The dude got a pipe shot in the All-Star game. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
Right. There, the Jeter, the full Jeter is never coming back. Uh huh. Okay. Like it, it almost is impossible to make it through a career with people wanting to honor you like they do Jeter. Like mm-hmm. even Rivera, who is unimpeachable and probably a better person and probably everything better, <laughs> doesn't get it. And Trout d- is not beloved in the same way, and he won't get it. And most guys eventually become villains uh, anyway. So, yeah, I mean, the, the the Jeter is like a once in 40 years sort of thing. Like, I'm not sure. I don't know how many p- guys you could transport to now, and they would even get a Jeter. Like, like it, assuming that the sort of racism of the era doesn't follow forward with them, like Jackie Robinson would, he'd get a full Jeter if he mm-hmm. could somehow <laughs> play his <laughs> retirement here this year. Yeah. I think that um, I think that if you somehow knew that Koufax was pitching through, you know, brain-destroying pain every start his last year and that he was going to hang it up at the height of his uh, talents um, and it would be sort of sad and depressing and that he would retire as he did, he might get close to a full Jeter. And well, I don't know. I don't know how many other full Jeters are even conceivable. Mm-hmm. Like like Ted Williams was, like, like the whole point of that John Updike thing is that, like, Ted Williams was retiring and with with sort of general ambivalence by people who somehow managed to be dissatisfied with his career. And Ted Williams would is the greatest hitter of all time. Yeah. He never did anything except win wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean that was his that was his deal, winning wars for America. Nah, <laughs> doesn't 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 try to beat the shift. Yeah. His own. And there was a Joe Pazanski wrote something the other day about how no one ever gets elected unanimously to the Hall of Fame. And he looked back at other classes and what people were writing at the time about certain players. And he looked at a sporting news preview of the Hall of Fame class of like the early 60s or something. And Jackie Robinson was eligible that year. And it and I think Phil Rizzuto and someone else. And it just said, like, and Jackie Robinson, who played second base for the Dodgers. <laughs> that's that's the only thing it considered notable about his career. <laughs> so yeah. things have changed in that sense. So yeah, I think David Ortiz will will get some sort of tour. So what would it take, or will would the Red Sox be willing to forego the tour, really almost kind of cancel the tour, and take Jose Fernandez, trade the the hero, the possible Hall of Famer? So the tour itself doesn't really mean much. No, them, right? it's just, I mean, they're, it, the, yeah, tour it represents is, the tour is the... worth probably close to $0 for mm-hmm. them. It's more, uh, what would they... Yeah, I mean, the Red Sox sell out all the time anyway, so right. they don't yeah. necessarily need to to milk the David Ortiz retirement tour. The, there's two There's two reasons they wouldn't do it, uh, and I'm trying to figure out the cost of each of those. One is that everybody would hate them, and... Uh, I don't know how much everybody would hate them. I mean, the guy, teams seem to be like basically a lot of what quote unquote sabermetrics is, is the willingness to do something unpopular mm-hmm. uh, or that people find uh, somewhat uh, distasteful and just just do it because it's good for winning. Um, and so, like, I don't know, uh, like where this would rank uh, on an outrage machine. Uh, if they did it, I mean, I think everybody would probably. What would what would your take be? Let's say you had to write the transaction analysis <laughs> of this. What would your take be today? I mean, I think, I think everyone does this trade. 
I think like you even think so? even David Ortiz would would be like, yeah, you should do this trade. I think I like I think he would give them a, a special dispensation or something because it's Jose Fernandez. Like if it were trading him for prospects or something, or you know someone less exciting and awesome and young, I I think there would be a big backlash. But if you traded David Ortiz for Jose Fernandez. Who's not going to be okay with that? Like even even sentimental Red Sox fans who love David Ortiz and were looking forward to seeing David Ortiz in 2016, gotta think even they <laughs> would. Yeah. It's a pretty good consolation prize, Jose Fernandez. I mean, guys, there's a long history of guys playing for other teams in the last you know year or couple yeah. years of their career, but that we didn't used to have the retirement tour which in a way feels like Ortiz is locking it in. And B, Ortiz, unlike a lot of those guys, is still really good. It's not, it's not in any way painful to watch him play. It's not as though the club is saying, you should really hang it up. And he's like, well, if you don't want me, I'll go somewhere else. I mean, he's still really good. He's still a big part of their team. And so I don't know that it's, uh, it would go down quite that easily. Mm-hmm. I... I and the, by the way, the second factor is uh, whether the guy, the people who made the trade themselves, would would just rather have Ortiz. Like whether it'd be more fun to have David Ortiz in their lives than Jose Fernandez. And I don't. I, I mean, it would certainly they would rather trade someone other than Ortiz. But I don't know if that's not, so. So you think it's an automatic, like like an immediate yes, yes sign here. We don't even have to talk about it with ownership, kind of thing. You probably have to talk about it with ownership, but but, but it, like it happens like immediate, like it happens a hundred times out of a hundred that they say I yes. I think so, yeah. I mean, I, you know, maybe it's a it's a new front office, and we were talking about how they do things differently. Maybe they would place more value on the loyalty or something than we expect. But yeah, I think it happens. So Matt Trueblood the other day was uh, making the case that uh, Carlos Carrasco has more trade value than Jose Fernandez. Um, right now because mm-hmm. uh, you know the contract Carrasco's got basically five extremely friendly years Fernandez has three and really the third one will be pretty close to market value anyway and he's also got the a fairly short history of uh, being healthy like you don't quite know how his body will react to the the full year anyway let's say uh, I don't know that's not the point I'm trying to make but let's just say that they're equal value in a vacuum if the red and let's say the Red Sox internal metrics agreed with this, and they also thought that Carrasco was better than Fernandez in a vacuum, maybe even more valuable. There's no, they don't trade Ortiz for Carrasco though, right? No, no. So there it needs is, to be someone so, who has an aura. So there is an acknowledgement that the aura is a big factor here, and yes. we're just like the the question is how much the aura weighs, and in this case, you're saying the Fernandez aura outweighs the Ortiz aura. But if this question were rephrased for any number of similarly valuable great players, mm-hmm. you think the answer would be that they would still opt for inferior David Ortiz for the retirement tour. Yes. Significantly inferior, by the way. Like you're saying Jose Fernandez is essentially a no-brainer and Carlos Carrasco is probably a no. And so if Carlos Carrasco, you know, that like that's a big that's a big turndown. If they yeah. turn down five years of Carrasco at like $6 million a year for one last year of their big DH. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think they would definitely take some sort of performance hit in order to keep David Ortiz. 
Would they trade David Ortiz for Sonny Gray? Yes. Okay. Not that Sonny Gray has a has a huge aura, but I think he's good enough. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain level at which the sentimentality is probably outweighed by the fact that everyone will forget that you traded David Ortiz when you get to watch the new guy being awesome for several years. Would they trade David Ortiz for Brandon Crawford? <laughs> no. All right. Okay. It's the last one. I'll, I'll All right. We actually both have play indexes. I suppose. Or do you have a play index? I have a play yeah, index. Yeah, okay. I have two, but they're both real quick. Okay, go ahead. Should I do them? All right. They're real, real quick. Okay, the first one is that David Schoenfield at ESPN uh, uh, did a little rundown of things that he learned from the Bill James book this year. And one of them was that there were six starts in which a pitcher threw 125 pitches or more in all of baseball, six, uh-huh. which is, of course, is uh, lower than it used to be. Yep. Uh, lowest ever, I think. Now, my question for you is what year would be the last year in which an individual starter threw as many 125 plus games as the entire league did this year? Ooh. How far back do you have to go for that classic model of fun fact to be true? Okay, so one starter throwing at least six games yeah. with a, mm-hmm. 125 pitches. Uh, exactly. I will say 2,000. Uh, that's, I might have said that too, because it's normally you have to go that far back to make a fun fact like this happen. You got to, you got to, you know, it doesn't just happen. But in fact, uh, in fact, the answer is 2011. Wow. Four years ago, <laughs> you had one pitcher throwing 125 pitches, six Halliday? starts. Holiday Verlander? Verlander. Uh-huh. He did it in 2009 and 2011, uh-huh. actually. Uh, so only four years ago, in only four years, we've gone from it being... You know, rare, but it happened to essentially completely never. Yeah. Of the six, by the way, at least two and maybe three were no hitters. Uh, so those are forced. Mm-hmm. Uh, you only have to go back to 2000 to find a pitcher who, well, let's see. I guess you have to go back to 1998 to find a pitcher with 16 hmm. of these starts. Le- Levo who was, uh, by the way, really young. Levo had 16 in, 2000, in 1998, and Randy Johnson also had 16 in 1998. The most since 1988 is, do you want to guess? How many was the 16 was Levon? 16 was how many Levo and Randy Johnson had in 1998. Uh-huh. So the most since 88, um, I'll say uh, 20. Yeah, it's 19. Nolan Ryan had 19 in 89, and Roger Clemens had 18 in the same year, and Mark Langston had 17 in the same year. So those are your those are your leaders. Uh, all right, second one, uh, Andrelton Simmons is negative offensive war and positive defensive war, of course. And I wanted to figure out uh, who is the who is the all time leader in war through age 25 with negative batting war uh-huh. uh simmons is sixth uh on this list it's actually quite a bit ahead of ozzy smith because partly ozzy smith's defense didn't show up on uh i guess on play-by-play data that was used to de- uh, measure defense back then or and also because his offense was was worse than simmons but anyway simmons has 17 more so far this year uh, in his career uh despite negative 31 batting runs 
that sixth, number one is Robin Yount, who was a 27 war player despite being a below, uh, a negative war batter to that point. Elvis Andrews uh, is actually ahead of Andrelton Simmons, hmm. uh, which kind of blew my mind. And that's partly because he has two extra years. Uh, but uh, Elvis Andrews through age 25 uh, had... And that was only, that's through 2014, so it's not the distant past. But through age 25, had more war than Andrelton Simmons. Simmons, though, is way, 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 way ahead of everybody else in defensive war uh, on that leaderboard. He's at 113 runs. Ozzie Guillen, number two, at 93. Uh, And to put Andrelton, last one, to put Andrelton Simmons' defensive value in perspective, I just looked at all major leaguers from 2012 to 2015. And Andrelton Simmons, of course, leads in defensive war. Defensive war includes both the runs that you save as well as the positional adjustments. So a shortstop gets more value right. than a left fielder. All right, so the difference between number one and number two is the same difference as between number two and number 96. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's why we were saying yesterday that he seems like an exception or should be an exception to people not trusting defensive ratings. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, my play index is a response to a listener email, and it's from Matt in Maryland. And he says, I'm a diehard Orioles fan, and I'm tired of the Orioles never getting credit for one of the most amazing performances in the history of baseball, or at least since the start of the 20th century. Specifically... On August 23, 2002, the Orioles came from behind to beat the Blue Jays 11-7 to improve their season record to 63-63. and I was at the game. It was great. We had battled back to 500, and we were going to compete for the playoffs. What happened over the rest of the season was historical dot 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 Lee bad! Exclamation no! point. Oh, <laughs> Lee. He's really excited for the Orioles for a second. <laughs> the O's went 4-32. and the rest of the way to finish at 67 and 95. Amazing. I mean, it has to be one of the greatest accomplishments in baseball history, right? I did some digging a while back and couldn't find any bad team that went 4 and 32 during any 36 game stretch, let alone 4 and 32 starting from a 500 record to close out a season. I looked at some likely culprits such as the 1962 Mets, the 1941 Phillies or 42 Phillies and I didn't see a 44 and 32 stretch for any of them. Even the 1988 Orioles, who started out 0-21, were 5-31 after 36 games. My questions are, is my hunch correct that no AL or NL team other than the 2002 Orioles has ever gone 4-32 or worse in a 36-game stretch or played to a lower winning percentage over a longer stretch? If I am correct, is this not a stretch of baseball incompetence that deserves a great deal of recognition? Could it be that the 1988 Orioles, with their 5-31 and 31 start to the season, are the closest to 4-32 and 32 that any team has ever come to reaching it? So, uh, you can look this up with the play index. You can go to the streak finder, and you can put in any number of games. So, you can put in 36 games. And you can't sort all years and all teams, but you can search for any one team and all years and you can look for the most losses in any stretch of 36 games. So I did this for every franchise, and I think that Matt's 
suspicion is correct that this is pretty unprecedented. Now, I will say that there have been worse stretches. The thing is that the the teams that did worse than this are basically from baseball prehistory, like the Pittsburgh Alleghenies of 1890 went 2-34 over a 36-game stretch, but, you know, that was 1890. Things were crazy. The 1916 A's, 2-34 also, and so did the 1897 St. Louis Browns. And the point is you have to go way far back to find these things. But in the modern era, the Tigers matched it with 4-32 in 1996. But, of course, the 1996 Tigers were a really atrocious, atrocious team. They were terrible. They did it. The 2012 Astros did it, 4-32. and And, obviously, 2012 Astros were horrendous. The 1982 Twins did it, but they were also horrendous. So, basically, that's it. Like, either you have to go back to baseball prehistory and some really terrible teams did it in the 1890s or the first decade of the 20th century, or you have to go to essentially the worst teams that we've seen in recent memory, the 1996 Tigers, the 2012 Astros, basically replacement-level teams. So he's right. The 2002 Orioles going 4-32 were just about as bad as any team has been, and the fact that they were 500 before they started that stretch really sets them apart from the teams that were awful all season. So I think that we can say that the 2002 Orioles had an unprecedented stretch of awfulness. So he was quite correct that he was watching a historic performance. Cool. Yeah. The best worst stretch over any 36-game stretch is 8-28. and 28. I mean, that's the best that any team's worst performance over that stretch has been. And... And he's right. I mean, you can, like, the Rays, the 19, the 2003 Rays were one of those teams. So terrible Rays teams were not this bad. Terrible Royals teams were not this bad. Expansion Mets teams were not that bad. Most of the really historically terrible teams did not have stretches. Obviously, it's, a, it's an arbitrary number of games, but this was something special. So I, I can think of maybe six in my lifetime, six uh, all-time achievements in being awful you know like it and, and kind of all at different scales so like the Mets in what 2000 whatever seven or eight or whatever had the greatest collapse ever right uh-huh. or at least since the the Phillies in the 60s so the Mets are an all-time bad the Mets collapsing is an all-time bad example of a team being horrible the Astros having like essentially the worst run three multi-year run in history and having like the zero TV rating and all that uh, is an all-time example of being bad at a team level. The 119 lost Tigers is an underrated baseball reference spiral uh, opportunity. You can almost go as deep in that season's club as you can go on Bonds or Pedro. Yeah. So that's that's a good one. And then the last three are all Orioles. The one that you just said, which we've determined is the worst run basically in history mm-hmm. and f- from a team that was good pretty good before that the 20 what did they start 20, oh and 21 or something yeah. in 1988 mm-hmm. and the time that they won me a bet that i had completely given up hope on ever winning 
by allowing 30 runs to the Rangers in a game. So, uh, you know, like I had bet that there would be a 30-run game at some point by like 2009 or something like that. And it was becoming extremely clear that that was not going to happen. Like nobody <laughs> comes close anymore, ever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there's this game where it's like 15-3 to three in the seventh. And I just start willing it. And it gets completely out of hand and they end up losing 30 to three, I think. And uh, so that's three of the six horrible team examples of my lifetime are the Orioles, which Mm. they don't feel like the worst franchise. But I guess you could throw the Pirates in there, too. Yeah. For Mm -hmm. the uh, the extended stretch uh, that they had. Right. And for the 1890 Alleghenies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Ben, quick little update on a thing that we were talking about. Uh, there's a tweet here about David Ortiz indication that in lieu of gifts, Ortiz will ask clubs honoring him to donate to his children's fund. Hmm. I would like to think that they will nonetheless donate the gifts they were going to give him and the children's (laughs) fund will be rich with Stetson hats, Weber grills, surfboards, bottles of wine, and highlight videos of David Ortiz. Portraits of David Ortiz. Portraits of David Ortiz. Yeah, it'd be great. The kids need them. Yeah. Okay. Some some of these kids have never worn a Stetson from Houston. That's true. All right. I guess we've talked enough. You can send us more emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. As always, I will roll over some of the good ones that we have that we didn't have time to. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and support the sponsor that we have used for much of this podcast by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on one year subscription. We will be back.